The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Welcome to the Hell Has an Exit podcast with host Teddy Tarantino. New episodes every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Don't forget to subscribe. Hey, welcome to Hell Has an Exit. Today we have Dennis G on the podcast. What's up, man? Thank what, you so much for being here. On? Yeah, so um, I was introduced to you through a close friend obviously yeah and um he was like oh you got to get this guy on the podcast and uh, he told me you had 18 years clean and you're also front row at the las vegas shooting route 91 yeah i was uh you know what's funny about route to j- kind of jump right in uh so for people who don't know uh the las vegas shooting is referred to as route 91 yeah route 91 why because that's the name of the festival oh the festival is called route 91. it's right 91 because it it technically was on what was the original Route 91, which goes smack dab through Las Vegas. Okay. Well, who was, what singers were there? It's like, uh, the main, the headliners were uh, Eric Church was Saturday night, uh, Jason Aldean was Sunday night, the day of the shooting, and mm-hmm. Sam Hunt was Friday. Oh, wow. And it was uh, 10117 uh, was the actual year and date of the shooting, but it was a three day festival that started on Friday. Uh, Friday, like at, I want to say they opened the gates at like four, mm-hmm. and my clean date is ten ten oh five. So oh wow! So you were you going there to celebrate your clean date? Well, it became kind of my celebration weekend because uh-huh. I was actually there shooting for my radio station, Kicks Hot Country, as a photographer, mm-hmm. and uh, I'd been going. It, it that was year four the actual festival. I've been going the last three, so it became my weekend to celebrate. Like I would meet. So other, it was like a ritual for you. Yeah, and. Uh, it was, it, dude, it was the best weekend. And well, it took a lot of therapy and step work, but mm-hmm. it was the best weekend until it wasn't for those 11 minutes. And my life was forever changed afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, Rick, actually, Rick was the first person to call me when I was getting back to the hotel. Uh, he had been, at that point, he had been my sponsor, uh, 18, so six, six. Uh, seven years Mm -hmm. something like that no well no i had it was 13 years so yeah it was eight years because i got with rick when i had five so he called me up he's like are you okay you want to make sure his wife i call mom and the running joke i met her last night the running joke between our sponsee family and actually one of my sponsee brothers was here i said oh i heard you're the new favorite sponsee i said don't worry i'll get that title back Mm -hmm. uh he called me up right away because mom was watching the news and she's like hey you need to call Dennis. He was there because I had been streaming the whole weekend. Like, hey, here I'm, you know, and being a photographer, you're not even front row. You're in the pit. And uh, yeah, it was it was crazy, man. You you don't realize how serious fight or flight is, especially as a recovering addict, because it's so ingrained in your survival mode. Mm-hmm. But when you're in the middle of literally hellfire you're just like what the fuck and you start saying that prayer mm-hmm. like god if you get me out of this one xyz and mm-hmm. you know forever since that moment you know up until now driving in here uh i i truly didn't realize how much the rooms have instilled 
things in me that have carried out and spilled outside of the rooms. You know, mm-hmm. I don't know if. Yeah, if, I understand. You know, it's just like essential things that people are taught, I guess, that aren't addicts mm-hmm. that we have to relearn after we stop that last one. So um, I just want to go into your story you're trying to go into. So uh, you've also been clean 18 years. And um, where are you from? Like, what's your story? So I grew up in a city called Rosemead. And, uh, you know, I hung out in with the neighborhood kids. And this is in California. Yeah, it's in California, San Gabriel Valley, mm-hmm. um, off of the 10 freeway. And uh, I grew up with the local neighborhood kids. And we, you know, I, I don't know anybody else, but from elementary school until literally the summer between fifth and sixth grade, there was a group of us that were always together. We were always in the same class. We always were in the same after school program. It was called uh, Latchy back then. And between the fifth and sixth grade, because we all lived in different parts of this neighborhood, there was different gangs. And when we came into the sixth grade, my best friends were now beefing with each other Mm because they were on different sides of the street. And I was kind of a neutral kid because my sister, who was a gangster by all means, scared the shit out of me and said, if you get involved, I'll kick your ass. And she told all the homies, like, Mm -hmm. I will have you whacked pretty much. Mm -hmm. So I could hang out with them, but they would never jump me in. Gotcha. And then she ended up meeting her future husband who jumped me into his neighborhood without her knowing. Then he told me, hey, if you tell your sister, I'll kill you. Mm -hmm. Because he was definitely afraid my sister was batshit crazy at the time. And uh, that was my lifestyle. You know, I I, kind of dipped my toe in with the homies, but I never got fully involved. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom, God rest her soul, passed away with 25 years clean. My pops passed away with 27. Wow, both of your parents were clean over 20 years? Yeah, well, my pops raised me. He's my my biological dad, still lives in Long Beach, but my pops raised me with 27. My nanny passed away with 52, and my grandfather, I don't even know how much time. And my nanny and my grandpa, my nanny went the, the church route, and uh-huh. my grandpa just said, okay, well, he called uh, my nanny Faye. He said, uh-huh. well, Faye, baby, you're not, and he just stopped drinking mm-hmm. and smoking, not uh, cigars, but uh, they they just lived that lifestyle. Mm-hmm. And my mom was in the rooms, my pops was in the rooms, and, uh, you know, the, my one of my most proudest moments was when I had 92 days clean, well, actually 90 days. I gave my mom my 90 day chip as she was in hospice dying. She said, I knew you'd finally fucking get it. Hmm. Cause I, I mean, I didn't try to get clean prior to that. I would have bouts of dry spells so I could kind of regroup and find my next move. Mm-hmm. And my mom always, uh, always wanted me to, to use my powers for good. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was a hard journey, man. Like it took honestly my mom dying and I share this and I don't know if a lot of people understand it, but she was my greatest support and my greatest enabler. And, you know, when I went into treatment, I had just gotten out of California state prison for the second time. And while I was in prison, now mind you, I'm not gang affiliated. I'm not, you know, I was a street level drug dealer supporting my own habit. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but I have the gift of gab. Like I think most addicts do like, yeah. that's how we get so far in life and get into some of the situations we do. Cause I may not have the credentials, but I could talk my way into any room. Mm-hmm. And I thought it would be a great idea to be a drug dealer in prison. And in a matter of four days, I ran up a $3,000 drug debt. And I had no means to pay. Uh, I got in with a group of guys who, you know, they said, oh, we're going to get, we'll grab this dope. You help bring it in. We'll, we'll sell it. 
we'll make five, 10 grand each. Mm-hmm. That sounds like a good idea for me. And needless to say, they were all connected. So they took it to their dorms and everybody got high on my, on my tap. Mm-hmm. And come Tuesday morning, I'm like, hey, well, where's the cash? You know, send it to the books, yada, yada, yada. And like, oh, we don't have it. And uh, I had to go to visit the next weekend and tell my mom, hey, uh, you know, if you don't help me pay a $3,000 debt, like literally we sat across the table like this. I don't know if you've been in the penitentiary, those little orange tables. Mm -hmm. And she came with her $30 of roll quarters and no, you know, sports bra because you can't have underwire. And a pack of cigarettes, even though I wasn't smoking, but I wanted to look cool, uh, sat down on the table and like she gave me a hug and a kiss. And I like the first sentence out of my mind, my mouth was like, hey, if you don't pay this three thousand dollar drug debt or if you're not going to let me know now so I can go back to the cell, get high with what little I have left and they'll call you to pick up my body. And to this day, I remember the look on my mom's face like like there was no high, no. Mm-hmm. It was you either pay this debt or I'm dead next week. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she broke down crying and she's like, well, what can we do? And I'm like, I don't know. And, uh, she's like, well, ask him like to this day, I'm the only person I know that had a drug debt in prison that had a layaway plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Cause I went back to the yard and I talked to the big homie and I said, look, I ran up this debt. This was, the, this is what happened. And he kind of took a liking to me anyway. He's a workout partner of mine. And you know, he'd been down for a long time. He was a level four onto a level one, worked his way down. And he's like, well, what the fuck were you thinking? And I'm like, well, you know, I thought I'd make some money, you know, da, da, da. And he's like, bro, they, they saw you from a mile away. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he bought up all my debt and him and my mom talked and they actually became really good friends. And I believe they stayed in contact until my mom passed away. Uh, and like I was, it sounds really fucking stupid, but I was grounded in prison. (laughs) Like I couldn't come out of my cell unless I was going to work. If I was on the yard, he had to be out there. No one was allowed. Like I couldn't even fucking buy a soup off of anybody without Mm -hmm. him. Like I was pretty much his bitch. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't do anything without his permission because of he put his name on the line. So I want to get whacked. Mm -hmm. And, uh, that that was the beginning of my journey. I, I would love to say I didn't get high after that weekend. I still got high. Uh, my clean date's 10, 10, 05, and I thought I was doing something because 10, 9, 05, my Sally had a George Foreman. Don't ask me how he had a George <laughs> Foreman in prison, but he had one. We were making, uh, uh, they, they had this burrito where it's kind of like fried on the outside. Like So he was putting in the Foreman, and we it was a spread burrito. I, you know, if you've never been to prison, look up spreads. Mm-hmm. they're the shit you can make some really good food so we had the spread burrito and we were drinking we weren't even drinking moonshine we were drinking the stuff that was off the top of the moonshine but it still got you drunk but it could kill you and we had like a paper thin joint and he's like oh this is to celebrate your freedom whoopty whoop and and uh that was the last time i got loaded like i don't even want to say i got loaded because the moonshine gave me a fucking headache and mm-hmm. I, I swear i had the skirts and the the joint was so thin we smoked more you know, zigzag than, yeah. than joint. Uh, and 1010 came out. I woke up and we were about to have a race riot, uh, us against the blacks. And the big homie came to my cell. And, you know, if you've ever been to prison politics, you know, one South Sider jumps, we all jump, regardless mm-hmm. if you're walking out the gate. And like I said, this guy, this guy was looking out for me. He, he told me, sit on your bench. I don't care what they call you. You fucking get out of here. And if I ever see you again, I'll kill you myself. And uh, 
I walked out the gate and the first thing I did was give my mom my gate money, which was $300, which in hindsight, if you're coming out of any type of length of time in prison, $300, I mean, it don't even buy you a bus pass yeah. nowadays, but I gave it to her and she's like, what's this for? You're going to need it. I said, because this is, I'm doing something different because this is my second term now. Mm -hmm. My first term, I went up to CMC West and lost like 140 pounds, learned how to play pinochle, like no consequences. Like I was like, this ain't bad. You know, mom put money on my books. My first wife put money on my books. Like it was a, a vacation for 11 months, mm -hmm. you know, going to Chino, which is kind of like headquarters for Sodanios and Southsiders and everybody acting like a level four killer on a level one yard. And, uh, putting myself in the predicament I did, like, I was like, I'm cool. I don't want to go. Back. I, I don't know what I'm going to do with my life, but I definitely don't want to fucking come back to prison. Mm -hmm. So I gave my mom the money. And uh, so while I was in prison, my uh, my neighbor, his name's uh, Greyhound. He's actually in the room. So I think he has a little less time than I do. But uh, the funny story about me and him was he was the yard sergeant's uh, porter. So he was like the top inmate in the mm -hmm. yard like he was the one to make sure your paperwork got pushed through he was like he was the man who had his hand in everything he was slamming heroin at the time and i'm not saying anything of his story that he hasn't shared yeah. at the podium level uh but he comes up to me and it's a running story between us now mind you i'm bouncing when i went to prison i was almost 400 pounds by the time i got out of prison i was like two you were almost 400 pounds yeah 400 pounds 388 was what my average weight oh that's crazy yeah and with the dope habit with the dope habit and the funny thing is you, uh so when you're talking dope are you talking heroin or you no i was meth. meth meth is what brought me to my knees i dabbled so you were in 400 it. pounds on meth so this was my average order at del taco uh -huh. and mind you i would go with my drug dealer because he was my running partner at mm -hmm. the time and I would order like 10 tacos, soft shell, half soft shell, half hard, uh, chili cheese, uh, double hamburger, chili cheese fries, and whatever burrito I was in the mood. And then I would turn over to my partner and be like, what do you want? And he'd be looking at me like, dude, you just fucking smoked an eight ball. Mm -hmm. Like, what do you mean you're going to eat? All of and I would eat all of it. And the pictures, wow. I would look back at the pictures and God bless the people who use dope and lose weight. That wasn't me. I looked like a bobblehead. So I had this big head and then I had this pear shape because this would get super skinny. But then I had this freaking four tire layer wow. and then it'd go to my hips and then these tiny little legs. Uh -huh. So, yeah, I, I had a serious dope habit with a serious eating habit to match. That's crazy. Um, he came up to me one day, uh, Greyhound, and said, hey, can I borrow your shirt? And I'm like, what for? He's like, oh, I got to talk to the sergeant. And he obviously had tracks. And I said, bro, I like. I'm going to three X like the prison had to special order my shit. Wow. Like, and everybody would like, I never did my laundry through the laundry service because my stuff would go in and they would never come out because the other inmates would grab it and they would all like prison has very ingenious people. Like on the street, they could mm -hmm. be beggars and hustlers inside. All of a sudden the master seamstress cooks and mm -hmm. fucking chemists. <laughs> and uh, so he borrowed one of my shirts and, Wait, what would they do with your shirt? Well, they would alter it. So, like, let's say you, like, you're working out, right? Like, I worked out just to lose weight, but I never gained muscle mass. Mm -hmm. You know, there's guys in prison that do 20 push-ups, and all of a sudden, they fucking bulk up like the mm -hmm. Hulk. So, they would alter the shirt, and, you know, so it fit them. Me, it would just fit, like, but they would tailor it. Um, and he was using it because it was long enough to cover his arm so the sergeant wouldn't see it. He was trying to get into uh, a treatment center in Hollywood which had a sister treatment center in Lincoln Heights. And he's like, 
well, and I, he knew about what, like everybody in the fucking prison knew about what happened with me. And he's like, bro, you know, I'm trying to get into this place. It might be something you want to look at, you know? And my mom, you know, she was a friend of uh, Bill W. Your mom was friends with Bill W? No, not personal friends, but that's where she hung out with uh-huh. friends of Bill W. Oh, okay. Gotcha. gotcha. And uh, my mom, I, I grew up in the rooms. Mm-hmm. I was that little kid who was under your chair, spilling your coffee, playing with my He-Man and my my Hot Wheels and stuff like that. So I had recovery in me. I just never, it just wasn't for me. And when I was telling Greyhound about that, he's like, well, you know, why don't you try this? You know, friends of Jimmy. And uh, I wrote to them and they said, well, you know, yeah, when you get out, you know, we have a six month waiting list. You got to show up. So fast forward to the day I, I parole, give my mom the money. I hadn't been laid in almost a year, you know, I have to prioritize. I got to get a license mm-hmm. so I can go to the club, get a girlfriend slash hostage, get laid, and then I'll give treatment a try. Mm-hmm. Um, but my mom said, well, I'm going to take you right away because they, they, they can, uh, they can see you. And this is how the universe works. I walked into treatment and the head intake specialist grew up in the neighborhood. I, I grew up in his neighborhood, neighborhood. And through a series of connections who my sister uh, was from that neighborhood, knew him. So I went from a six month waiting list to, oh, we'll take you in today. I'm like, whoa, 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 I got to get my license. You know, I, I still got to get laid. Mm-hmm. And uh, through a series of events, it went from six months to literally, I want to say I got out on a Monday and by the following Monday I was in treatment. Wow. Um, and I got there, my sister came four days later uh, and they called me into the office and I already knew it was bad news. And she's like, sit down. You know, mom went and they did some tests and she has uh, cancer. Now, mind you, like I said, my mom died with 25 years, but she was smoking two packs a day. You know, she was the kind of person who had a cigarette in her mouth, cigarette in the ashtray and the cigarette in the other hand with a cup of coffee and a mm-hmm. diet, uh, diet Pepsi or no diet Coke. Dad was a diet Pepsi. And uh, I knew she was sick long before she did just because of the vibe. And she never got tested. And then when she finally got tested, like I said, I was four days in treatment. And uh, a couple of days after that, they had exploratory surgery. And they found out that she had stage four ovarian cancer from the top of her esophagus to her, her anal. And there was nothing they can do. And the doctor told us, uh, get her affairs in order. Uh, and my mom, And my mom, God bless her. She had really long hair down to her hip. She was, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a wild child. She got a spiral cur- curl every six months. And she's like, fuck that. I'm not doing chemo. I'm not doing radiation. I'm not going to lose my hair. I'm going to fucking die on my terms. And we started planning her her death. Wow. Um, and meanwhile, I'm in treatment, you know, going to classes, trying to figure what my next move is. And, uh, I, you know... <sighs> I mean, I don't know about anybody else, but birthdays stopped being a thing for me other than a quick payday. Uh, you know, I'd come around my friends or my family around my birthday because, oh, give me gifts, give me gifts, give me gifts. And my mom, for years when I was in active addiction, I started using roughly around 13. And it was, you know, Strawberry Hills, Boons, alcohol, a little weed here and there. I didn't start hitting the hard stuff till I got in my 20s. 
and I was manageable. I was able to go to work. I was able to graduate high school. You know, I was able to, to be out in the world. Uh, and in between 23, well, 21 to 23 is when I started dabbling in designer drugs. Caught my first case for trying to be an ecstasy dealer. That was the CMC, uh, CMC West tour, as I like to call it. And then I came out and I got introduced to meth. And that was the, the match that lit. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and uh, it, it it all went out the window. Like, I didn't see my mom for a couple of years other than my birthday. I would always flake at family events. And this particular year, uh, I was in treatment, so she knew where I was at. And uh, she was going through, you know, doctors and stuff. And you could see the cancer eating at her. And if you've ever been around death, there's a smell when the body's decaying. And it was getting worse on my mom. And I remember she was upstairs. I was at the house for her birthday. My roommate, Leslie. Uh, and Leslie, if you ever see this video, brother, please reach out to me. I love you. Thank you for being there and part of my journey. Um, and uh, she came downstairs because she wasn't feeling well. And she sat on my lap and they brought a cake out and they sang happy birthday. And she told me how much she loved me. And uh, she got up after I opened my gifts. Now, mind you, all she wanted was us to decorate this fucking Christmas tree, right? And, and I love my mom. And I love my pops, but he was not a decorator. He, he would put <laughs> up with my mom. And uh, so me and Leslie went through this box of, I swear there was at least fucking 10 different light strands and not one light strand worked. So we had like six light strands together and this poor tree was weighed down with way more light strands than it needed. But we, each light strand had a section that worked. So we would wrap it, rig it around. Yeah. we would wrap it and then we'd get the next strand. So it looked like it had one strand, but it had a bunch and uh, we decorated it. She came down, she got happy. She sang my birthday song. She went in the bathroom and she fell. Wow. And uh, she had one of, they had one of those bonus doors and I opened it up and she was on the floor and she, we called 911 and we took her to the hospital. And uh, they're doing a bunch of tests. The doctor comes in and says, okay, well, you know, we don't know what's going on. And, and uh, she had to go to the bathroom again. And I, I took her to the bathroom. And I heard a thud. So I opened the door and my mom's on the floor unconscious and there's, blood's every, there's blood everywhere. Like she had blood coming out of every orifice. And uh, I hit the button, you know, code blue or whatever they call it. Everybody came in and, you know, they escorted us out of the room, put us in the, the waiting room. And um, the doctor came out and said, hey, we stabilized her. You guys need to call everybody. Like, you have hours. Mm -hmm. And my mom's, she's a stubborn bitch. Um, uh, when she came to, she's like, what happened? She had no idea. And we told her and she's like, well, what'd they say? And we said, like, they want us to call everybody, mom. Like, who do you want us to call? And uh, so 
this is where the universe works out. So I'm in the, the little room where they have the phone and I call my parole agent. Now, when I went into treatment, it was not a requirement of my parole. I went on my own free will. I, I did it because I made a promise to my mom. Mm -hmm. When she had made that arrangement to pay off my debt, she had said, the only thing, because I was like, oh, I'll, you know, addict talk. Oh, I'll pay you back as soon as I get on my feet. And she said, the only thing I need you to do to pay me back. Like, yeah, if you can pay me back three grand, great. But the only thing I want you to do is give treatment an honest try. Um, so I call my parole agent. I'm like, hey, uh, just let you know, I'm at this hospital. They told, my, told me my mom has a few hours to live. I'm not going back to treatment. All I ask is let me be here till the funeral. And then I'll either turn myself in, which was a lie, or catch me on the run. And he's like, whoa, 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 wait. Mm -hmm. I need you to call uh, the treatment center and talk to so-and-so uh, and let them know. So this treatment center had a set of rules. That if you went out on a pass and didn't come back, it, doesn't, it didn't matter what the excuse was. You're out. Yeah. You're out. Your shit's packed up on the porch and put in storage until you can pick it up. So I called my treatment center and I said, hey, we're at this hospital. Come pick up Leslie because I didn't want him to get violated. Uh, my mom's dying. I already called my parole agent. He told me to call you just to let you guys know. Um, I'm not coming back. She's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You got to call your parole agent back. He told me to tell you once I'm done talking to you, call him back. So this went on for like a good two hours. They were bouncing me back off each other. Mm -hmm. Unknown to me, he was communicating with them and the, I don't know, the manager, president, the, the head guy at that particular plant or that particular center, as, as well as the parent center. And like, and then they had a special house meeting because it was a co-ed uh, facility where they called everybody into the, the cafeteria and said, look, this is what's going on. You know, Dennis is at the hospital with Leslie. Um, his mom is literally going to die. Like we thought that day, he doesn't want to come back. Uh, they took it to the house folk mm -hmm. and said, would you guys be okay with ma us making an exception? Because by this time, I'm almost 90 days clean. Uh, I'm, for lack of a better word, I'm a leader in the house. Uh, I'm working. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm doing, I'm checking all the boxes. And uh, so they devised a plan. It, it's a co-ed where we couldn't talk to the women. Like you would see, yeah. each other, you know what like I mean? Walk by each other. Yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I, I don't see you, you know, even mm -hmm. though everybody was sneaking into each other's room, like all that madness. But uh, they asked for volunteers and Everybody from staff down volunteered to stay with me in eight hour shifts as long as it took. So technically, by the bylaws, you were in. I was in treatment. Yeah. And uh, I only know of one guy who's stayed clean consecutively since the, in that treatment center. The rest have kind of either gone back to being quote unquote what they deem as normal are in active addiction or I don't or know dead, where they're at. Yeah. And uh, so after two hours, my parole agent and my counselor got on a group call with me and said, look, this is what we're doing. We're coming to pick up Leslie because he had been with me all day by that point, like 12 hours. Uh, we're bringing three of your, your housemates and they're going to stay with you in eight hour shifts. So you don't get violated uh, and that you can still be technically in the program. Um, and what we thought was my mom's last day ended up being roughly about two weeks. 
uh, and true to their true to their word, every eight hours a new group of wow, guys. Wow, that's crazy. And these guys, it took us like three days to get my mom a room. Mm -hmm. So we were in ER, and these guys were literally sleeping in the ER with our little brown lunch mm -hmm. bags. And uh, we got her at a convalescent home. And I remember on my, my 90th day, I told my mom and, you know, by this time she was declining. And uh, I said, mom, I need a meeting. Like it, we were having kind of meetings in like in the lobby and stuff. Mm -hmm. And I said, I need a meeting mom. And she's like, okay. So I called the treatment center. I said, Hey, this next round, don't bring anybody. I'm going to come home. Cause by, at this point, you know, I'm institutionalized. Mm -hmm. I was taking bird bath in the, my mom's restroom. And like, I wanted a real shower. I needed a real meal. I needed, you know, I needed a meeting. And so I went and if I'm being hundred percent honest with you and myself, I wanted to get my 90 day chip. It was 90 days. Mm -hmm. And so I went to a meeting and I, I remember getting a call. They called me into the office and the convalescent home said, Hey, you need to get back here now. Like, it's time. And I came back and I gave my mom my 90 day chip. And she's like, I knew you'd finally fucking get it. Mm. And then she proceeded to tell me, Hey, I want to go outside and smoke a cigarette. Now, by this point, my mom's hooked up to oxygen 24 seven. Mm -hmm. We're in a convalescent home and they only have a, a little patio, probably as big as this room with a little walkway, a little patch of grass. Right. I'm like, all right, mom, I got to shut the oxygen off. She's like, fuck that. I'm going to die without the oxygen. I said, well, mom, you can't be smoking and have oxygen. She's like, well, fuck it. At least you and I will go together. Ha, 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 ha. She smokes her cigarette. And uh, I took her back to the room. And uh, she woke up from a dead sleep and said, my skin's on fire. My skin's on fire. Now, mind you, I'm 90 days clean. Mm -hmm. Somehow, I am in charge of my mom's medical decisions. Don't ask me how the fuck that mm -hmm. happened. But me and my sister had a conversation when this all started. My sister doesn't do well with death as it's happening. But when after the person dies, she's like, and I'm the opposite. Once the person's gone. It starts to affect you. Yeah. So we call in the nurse. We had, the, we had hospice there. And they're like, well, it's only going to get worse because the body's literally eating itself and shutting down. So you have to decide, like they couldn't do it without me saying, consenting, put her in a, a medically induced coma. So uh, I called my nanny. I said, hey, you need to get down here. I called my sister, called everybody that uh, my mom wanted and we put her in a medically induced coma. And then two days later she was gone. Um, and that's how my recovery started. Like I got out of prison and four days later, I was dealing death head on. And, you know, to this day, I believe my mom made a conscious decision to not fight because she knew if she would have been around, there was probably a really high chance I wouldn't have been stayed clean. Because mm -hmm. life has showed up full force even before Route 91. And one of the things that I hold very strong on to is I had a good friend of mine who knew my mom, like they got, they were in the rooms together. And one day after my mom had died and, uh, I was contemplating leaving treatment before I was discharged and phased to go to the clean living house. Uh, he came outside and he goes, I know what you're thinking. And I'm like, what? So you're thinking of leaving and getting loaded. And I said, so, 
and he goes, remember this, the last memory your mom has of you is you clean. Don't disrespect that. Wow. And at my hardest points in life since then, that's been something I hold on to. Um, I'm not going to lie, Route 91 was probably the closest I ever got to drinking. And Rick called me because I was at the casino. I I had just walked one of the survivors out (coughs) to her husband or her dad. I think it was the the dad. It was the, the first girl. And I had this ritual with my mom. We would always pay $20 on the dollar slot machine on a particular machine because that was her machine. Mm-hmm. And I went to put the $20 in the waitress came in. I said, yeah, give me a Jack and Coke double shot. Not even thinking this was 13 years clean. And the usually when I play my mom's 20, I usually win a little, like don't get me wrong. I've never won like yeah. big, but enough to play like an hour or so. Mm-hmm. I literally put the money in, ordered the Jack and Coke 20 was gone in like seconds Mm because my mom always said if you're gonna bet bet max bet that's how you win Mm -hmm. and i usually win a little bit but it was gone like it was gone like she Mm -hmm. wasn't even down the aisle it was gone and that's when rick called me and said hey mom told me what's going on are you okay wow and i proceeded just to turn away and walk and start talking to rick on the phone and i don't if he wouldn't have called me i probably would put more money in i probably wouldn't have the clean time i have today so that, and that's kind of where the 13 years prior mm-hmm. is when that really came into effect for me, because I had to start using those tools that I had been putting in my toolbox. Because when you go through something like that, at least for me, I don't know about anybody else. The first thing I want to do is numb. Mm-hmm. Like I want to forget. I want to, I don't want to feel what I'm feeling. And, uh, it's, it's been, a, it, I think the first 13 years. And a lot of stuff has happened in the first 13 is nothing like the last six. Mm. And the cool part about it is I've struggled more the last six than I had the first 13. 13. Um, And I don't know if it's because of what I went through or the fact that, you know, I kind of have fallen off the path per se, not recovery path, but going to meetings. The, the thing that, I will say, and I've heard it in the rooms plenty of times, where my program will get you loaded. Mm-hmm. And the one thing that's been constant in my life is Rick and a few of my quote-unquote sponsee family. Like, mm-hmm. They've always made sure to check in on me and be a part of my life. And, you know, uh, that's been the grounding force to make to make me who I am today. So walk me through, um, like, the, the first day of the concert and, like, what that was oh, like. Oh, man. You know... Okay, this is year three, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take you back a little bit. So, I I get picked up by this radio station, Kick, Kicks Hot Country, out of Indio in Palm Springs area, mm-hmm. and they are what they call a secondary market. So, for those who aren't in the industry, there's you know a, a primary market like for here it'd be Go Country, like the big stations like Power 106 or you know the the ones that always get the the big interviews, mm-hmm. right? And they host big events. Well, my little radio station. Uh, is a little tiny station. Their their main office is probably as big as this room, right? <laughs> and I met them through a family friend and he knew I was a photographer and he's like, hey, would you come to a, a talent show we're having at the Fantasy Springs Hotel and shoot the, the event? And I'm like, okay, great. Well, how much does it pay? And he's like, well, I can't pay you, 
but uh, you know, you get I'll put you in his connections and I'll give you, you know, at the time we were doing a Disneyland uh, promotion, he's like, I'll give you Disneyland promotion for the kids, you know, tickets and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And that was the beginning of my professional uh, photography for career for music. So fast forward for a few years, he calls me up one day and says, hey, what are you doing in October? And I was like, well, I just got this job with the county. Uh, I don't know why. He's like, well, I did this festival last year called Route 91. It was the first year. And the irony was Jason Aldean was there that first year, too. Mm-hmm. And he goes, uh, I find I, I did it last year. And he kind of has a setup like this. I mean, not obviously not mm-hmm. as high tech, but uh, he said, uh, I got a photo pass this year and I want to bring you along. And my radio station guy is, he is the polar opposite of me. You know, I grew up in the hood, you know, Dickies, tank tops, you know, <laughs> bald head. Uh, he is, and I love my manager. We're really good friends. But he like, he's a suit and tie kind of guy. Always have been. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you need to come. In, like, I need you in slacks. I want you in a button down shirt, you know, uh, clean shaven, be professional. And uh, so my first year, I walked in and I had what I call, you know, I was joking with your man. I'm like, oh man, your camera said like I all of a sudden I go to 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 equipment envy, right? Well, I walk into this venue and these are like professional photographers on like five levels mm-hmm. into the future. And some of them have cameras and lenses that are worth more than my car. <laughs> and I had this, you know, not even a semi pro, I had like a, a Nikon D like some, you buy at Costco for like six hundred dollars <laughs> the kit lenses yeah. and everything. And that was my introduction to route and the universe works in strangest, the strangest of ways. I felt way in over my head. I reached out to Rick. He's like, man, you know what you're doing? You take good photos. And you know, the universe put people in my life that were in the rooms that were there. Like it's a, it it was a big recovery event. Like you don't realize how many people in recovery were there until after the fact. Now the community we have, um, and so by year three, I was a seasoned vet. Like mm-hmm. I had a pro camera. I actually had my, I brought one of my wife's cameras too. And like, I knew the people that worked the venue. I knew, uh, and I was that photographer that got known as a human element photographer. Cause I didn't have the monster lenses or the best equipment per se, but so I was- get up close and personal. Yeah, like if you were there and you like, I caught like four or five proposals throughout the three years I was there. Mm. First kisses, bromances, like everything that what made that event so special. And I still get chills when I talk about it. It's the only event that I was well, comfortable. I see. It's crazy. Yeah. Only event that I felt comfortable <clears throat> taking my family to. And this was prior to root. Like I really don't take my family, my, my spouse or my kids to any concert event, unless I know the ins and outs. I know who's going to be there. What crew is working? Like, doesn't happen but this was one of the events where my wife would come uh, with her best friend uh, my kids were going to come my son was just getting out of uh, a boot camp so he was going to come and get married my two younger ones were coming and uh, this was the kind of event if you were there and I stepped on your boot and spilled your beer you would buy me a beer and be like hey bro I'm sorry I was in your way mm-hmm. like it was just it was it was to this day I have yet to find a festival that had that type of energy and going into this weekend, we, you know, by then this is year three, we're kind of seasoned vets. We get there on Thursday. We have media, media briefing. 
we we know you know night one is off the hook you know i always tell people uh, for a photographer uh you know, day one of any event, it's like, yeah, we're here. Day two is like, yeah, let's do this. Day three, we're like, fuck, man, let's grab these photos and go home. Mm-hmm. But I was really excited. Jason was the only person on the the, uh, the bill that I hadn't seen. And I was super excited to see him. And by this time, uh, my station head had to get home because he had a prior engagement. The other photographer that was there from our station, who was kind of a secondary shooter, uh, he had taken off. And my station said, hey, I'm going to leave the equipment here. I need you to grab everything when you leave after you're done. And uh, Jason's setup is we weren't allowed to shoot from the media pit. We had to be from the station board or the the audio board. And mind you, I didn't have the super long lens or anything. So I told my station, as a photographer, you're given three songs usually. And for Jason, it's the first three songs. Other artists, depending on where they want you to shoot from the set. So I told my... uh, so my station has said, hey, I really want to see Jason. I already had set up with the guy at ADA to have a seat there mm-hmm. uh, because I have all my gear. And I said, can I just shoot the first song, grab some quick flicks, and then I want to enjoy the show. He's like, yeah, man, go ahead. Just make sure you grab our stuff. Uh, I did that. And I remember sitting down. And I was sitting down to... And this is the second night? No, this is the third night. This happened night three. So okay. This the is last it. night. Okay. This is the last night. There's 22,000 of us. We're all hee-hawing, rocking out. I'm totally fanboying because like I want to see him. I've done my job. Now it's time for me to enjoy the show. And I have all my gear and I'm in ADA. So everybody's either in wheelchairs, walkers or little carts. And, you know, by this point, you know, and mind you, I'm back to 300 pounds. So I got all this equipment. I'm tired. I'm overweight. And I sit down and I'm going through my photos on my phone and I'm half paying attention. And I hear the first pop and I look around cause you know, you grow up, I mean, I don't know what your background is, but if you grew up in any type of lifestyle, you know what a gun sounds like. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I turn around to the guy behind me and it's funny. I remember to this day, he had like this monster farmer build. Mm-hmm. He had overalls on no shirt, older white gentleman with, a, I call it the he ha straw hats. And, uh, you know, we had been rapping, you know, cause my seat was literally right in front of him. And, I said, hey, did you hear that? He goes, yeah. I go, does this sound like a gunshot to you? And he goes, yeah. And the lady next to me was like, oh, no, it's a fire. It's fireworks. So when you're media, they usually let you know when there's a guest, a surprise guest, if there's going to be fireworks, pyrotechnics, anything like that, because they know you're trying to catch that shot. And I was like, mm, no, they didn't tell us there's going to be any fireworks at the end of the show. Um, and then we heard pop, 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 pop. And that was when they believe uh, Paddock shot out the window. And I said, no, that's firework. I mean, that's that's gunshots. So my first thought is there's someone in the venue. And then that's when, that's when it started. That's when there was no denying. He started shooting down into the crowd. It mm-hmm. was just, and you know what that sounds like. And everybody, it was fight or flight. Like everybody panicked. Uh, me, the people in ADA, I told everybody to get down, you know, other people were like, get down, get down. And luckily for us, uh, ADA had the, the metal fencing, like barrier thing. Mm-hmm. And, uh, we all hid behind there. And then, because at this time you still think it's someone in the crowd, right? Yeah. I still think it's someone, I had no idea it was someone from the, uh, MGM until after the fact. Wow. So yeah. my gut reaction is there's someone shooting in the crowd. Mm-hmm. 
Um, so I'm trying to get as flat as possible because I want to make it home. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the first fall it came, we were all on the ground and there was a break. Like it, it all you heard was screaming, crying. And then there was, it, it was like dead silence. Like everybody, the, the gunshot stopped. And then all of a sudden you saw the sea of humanity start running towards exits. And where the ADA was, it was right next to the media tent, which was right next to the VIP backdoor entrance where all the music acts were coming in and out mm-hmm. of. And we started running that way. And it was total mayhem. Everybody was being trampled on. And I was an ADA, so there was people with disabilities trying to get out. Uh, we and the way they had this set up, it was like a, it had like risers, so because you know people in wheelchairs and walkers, so they like they, the first row was people that could walk like without real assistance. Then it was walkers, and then the last row was uh, uh, the little electric uh, mm. carts. So everybody's trying to get out, but you know the people on walkers and carts can't get out because they have to go down the ramp. Mm-hmm. So a lot of us start pushing the, the metal gates down, so the people that could move could get out and then the rest of us. And I remember the lady next to me who, uh, I don't know if she had a walker or something, but she fell and just then the the, the bullets hit. Uh, so we all dropped and we're all covering each other and everybody gets up to run and I noticed the lady didn't get up. And my first, I didn't, didn't think if she had passed or not. I just, my first thought was, I was like, get the fuck up. And she's like, I can't, I can't, I can't walk. And another guy came like, just came scooped her other arm and we're mm-hmm. we're like hustling as much as we can and you know i remember very vividly uh i said that prayer i'm like god if you get me out of here i'm gonna be a better person and i'm gonna take a family photo you know the running joke in the the industry is as a photographer you never take photos of your, yourself or your family because you're too busy taking photos of everybody mm-hmm. else and i realized in that particular moment i had taken a photo and like, uh, well, my daughter is 16, my youngest. She was 10. So I hadn't taken a photo probably in four or no, six years mm-hmm. of all me and all my kids. And uh, then the, he started shooting again. The lady uh, lady went down we went down and uh, we got through like four volleys till we got out. And then that's when uh, they were directing us to the car and I made that call to my wife. And, uh, you know, mind you, this is the first year my wife did not go. She had been there every year I'd been there. Mm-hmm. It was like you, we had talked about earlier. It was my celebration. You know, every mm-hmm. year it's like, Hey, I'm clean another year. Yeah. Let's rock out country. And, mm-hmm. uh, this was the year my son was coming to, he was getting out of boot camp. Uh, he was going to get married. We were going to bring my youngest daughter at the time. My, my baby, my, my youngest son was going to stay, mm-hmm. uh, like it was going to be a family event, you know, uh, 13 is, uh, it's one of my favorite numbers. So it was year 13. Like it, there was just so much happening. And my wife's friend who used, comes with us, she couldn't make it. And my wife didn't want to come by herself. And they got in late because my son couldn't get off camp soon. Like a series of things happened to where we ended up giving her ticket away to a, a Navy guy. And I'm really grateful because I'm the type of guy who I got the gift of gab and I would have had my wife right up front. Like, mm-hmm. cause you know, by this time, most people that are in the very front at these festivals are usually there every year. 
-hmm. Like I knew them by face, some by name. We were friends on social media and I would have made sure my wife was right smack in the front. Mm -hmm. And uh, I called her and said, hey, there's an active shooter. I don't know if I'm going to make it home. And if I don't, I love you. I love my kids. Kiss them. And let them know I'll always be there watching over them. And I hung up the phone. Because she had drove 12 hours to get home and fell asleep. Mm. Next call I made was to my son, who's a Marine. And uh, I called him and I said, hey, I, I, I want to talk to somebody. I go, there's an active shooter. He's like, fuck you mean there's an active shooter? I said, there's somebody shooting us in the crowd. He's like, get to the fucking car. Like, I, I got I got to the car and then I froze. Because he's still shooting at us. And he's shooting into the crowd, into the parking lot. So he's still shooting at the cars? He's shooting at the car. Well, from what we understand, he was trying to shoot at the airport. They had these big gas tanks. Mm-hmm. So Route 91 Festival Ground was on Las Vegas Boulevard, literally across the street from the Mirage and MGM Grand mm-hmm. and the Luxor. There's this huge strip. Uh, it, it's where they had big parties, big uh, big events. And then behind that was a dirt lot for VIPs, disabled, mm-hmm. and the music acts, and a church. And then behind that, there was the beginning of the uh, one of the airfields. So they had these big fuel tanks. <clears throat> And the theory is that he was trying to shoot the, the fuel tanks to cause an explosion to kill more people. Mm-hmm. So he's shooting past the crowd because by this time, uh, a lot of the crowd's gotten out. Other than the people that are injured are mm-hmm. frozen in place for very good reason. You know, you're getting all these bullets uh, coming out. And I call my Marine and my Marine's like, get to your fucking car. And I'm like, I'm at the car. And he's like, well, get in the car. And I said, I can't. He's shooting. He's uh, as soon as you can, get in the fucking, like, he literally went into Marine mode. Get in the car. Put the key in the fucking car. Start the car. Back up. Like, he was giving me step-by-step direction. And uh, I told him, get a hold of your mom. Tell her I love her. And so he proceeded to call her mom, his mom. And on the way out, uh, I proceeded to pick up some people. Uh, First, it was a couple. Uh, No, actually, it was a girl. And to this day, I've never heard from her again. Uh, she was a young lady and she's like, I'm, 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 I'm trying to get out of here. I need help. I'm like, well, shit, get in my car, you know, uh, we'll, we'll get out together. And then we got a couple get in the back and, uh, they, they jumped out because I was going too slow and they figured they'd get out on foot. And then auntie and Betty, uh, got in my car. So I had this young lady in the front and auntie and Betty in the back and we're making the way out and bullets are flying. And, uh, we get to this point. Where so in this particular parking lot, there was one way in, one way out. Uh, they had it all fenced off. Now, mind you, the fences were being torn down by this point because people were trying to get out. But I was trying to go to the exit because I was driving my wife's car. Like I wasn't going to try to go off the curb and fuck her car up because <laughs> I ain't trying to piss piss her off. And we're going to this exit, and there was a truck, a race truck, and we're both kind of edging racing to get to this truck. Now I had the young lady in the front. I got Auntie and Betty in the back and the bullets are flying and i stopped because april i call her my angel comes walking down this street it's a dead end street to the parking lot and deer in headlights you know and she looks up and looks at me and says can you please help me 
and I'm like, I am so sorry, my car is full. I have my wife's car, I don't have my minivan. And we, I have the car seat in the middle. Mm -hmm. So you got Auntie and Betty in the back and the car seat in the middle. Now, April, and April, I love you if I get you, like, she's probably 100 pounds soaking mm -hmm. wet. And uh, I said, look, if you can get in the back, I'll get you. And Aunt Betty, Auntie and Betty were like, well, fuck it, we'll put you in the car seat or we'll lay across mm -hmm. our laps. But because I stopped and let April get in the car, the truck moved forward. And while we're getting April in the car, the driver of the truck says, I've been shot, I've been shot. Cause we're hearing ding, 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 ding. And he's like, I've been shot, I've been shot. He jumps out of the car, someone jumps out of the truck of the bed, comes and drives. Now, mind you, if I went and stopped to get April, I would have pulled forward. Mm -hmm. And the way his truck was raised, his leg getting shot was right where my head would have been. Mm. So I always tell April, you saved my life. And she says, no, you saved mine. So we, we have only one choice. I can't go. That's so crazy. You guys are in the parking lot and there's shooting going on still. How long do you think this shooting was? How, they, how long was it? They said it was like 12 minutes, but honestly, to this day, it felt like fucking hours. Yeah. Like it was just, brr, 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 and it just, and here's the irony. I'm trying to run away from the, the shooting. I get to the end of the parking lot and I got to drive towards the shooting. So when the guy gets shot or the guy gets shot in his truck, April's getting in the car. I hear dink. And I'm like, are you guys like the car got hit? Mm -hmm. So I am like, are you guys okay? Everybody okay. I get out of the car. And now in hindsight, it's probably wasn't the smartest fucking thing to do, but I get out the car and I'm walking around the car and the shooting's still happening because I'm paranoid my wife's car got hit and fuck, I'm not trying, I'd rather deal with the, the wrath of the gunman than the wrath of my wife, you That's know what I mean? Uh, have you ever been married? It can happen. Um, and uh, he, uh, I walked around the car, I didn't see anything. So we take off and they're like, please don't go that way because I have to go towards the venue and it's still happening. And I said, we, we only, there's only one way out. And I said, God didn't bring us this far to have us die on this fucking side street. And I started quoting scripture. And to this day, I can't tell you what scripture it was. And praying and just like the spirit. And I'm not, I'm not a Bible thumper. I have a spiritual relationship with my higher power who is not me and in loving and caring. And I was really leaning into that. So we drive out and we make a right away from the venue. And you just see a sea of humanity. 22,000 people are running for their lives. And I remember pulling into the Hooters parking lot and I, and I got everybody out of the car. I'm like, are you guys okay? No. And, and so I'm a photographer. I have a battery charger and I'm doing live uploads on our social media. So my phone is charged and everybody else's phone is dead and they're all freaking out. I'm like, are you guys okay? We walk around the car. We don't see any damage, but I knew the car was hit. And so I gave my phone to everybody and I said, call your people. Now, some people were in the venue. Some people were at home in hotels and they're all calling. And I'm like, mind you, I'm almost 400 pounds. I got this beard that comes down to, you know, my belly button. I got this crazy mustache. I look like an obvious gang member with prison tattoos. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm telling these people as they're talking to their husbands, their dads, their, their children, like, hey, my name is... Uh, Dennis, such and such. I live at this address. Here's my wife's phone number. Here's my license number. This is the car we're driving. We're at this hotel, room number, such and such. I'm with radio station, such and such. Because I wanted these people, you know, I had their loved ones in yeah. their car. And 
it was all women. Like I know in my mind, like if my wife calls me and says, Hey, I just got in some car with some random dude. There's a mass shooting. I'm like, what the fuck you doing? Getting into some, you know, like, mm-hmm. so I wanted these people to feel comfortable. So now mind you, we we're driving as far away from the venue. We're like 20 minutes out. I'm praying and I stopped seeing people in cars and I said, okay, well, I'm staying at the strat. And I said, I'm going to go around the long way. And uh, we pull up and to this day, I'll never forget it. So we pull up and the valet's full. And uh, we pull up into the, the parking lot and go up to the, the, the South Park. And I had my handicap plaque and I pull up to the third floor and I pull up and there's one spot open. It's a handicap spot. I pull in and as soon as we pull in, we get out of the car, all of a sudden we hear and my front tire goes flat. My front tire got hit. Wow. And mind you, we were driving for a good 20, 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking like five, 10 miles an hour. Like we were hauling ass. And literally that tire held till we literally pulled into the parking lot. And uh, we get out the car, I grab all the ladies and uh, we walk to the hotel and we go up to my room and I call up down, down the front desk. And at this point, no one on this trip knew other than if you were there. And I called the hotel and said, hey, there was a mass shooting at the Route 91 Festival. And I'm in my room. I have four people that are not a part of my room. I'm I'm not telling them to leave. I'm letting you guys know if you need to charge me more, fuck it, whatever's. And they're like, no. And by this point, reports are starting to come in. And they're like, barricade the door. Do not open the door for anybody unless we tell you it's you. And uh, so... I had a, a double occupancy room, so we, we dismantled one bed, barricaded the door, and we proceeded to... Uh, their people started calling back on my phone, and uh, they all got picked up. And uh, the April got picked up second. That young lady, and I can't remember her name, and really bugs me to this day, got picked up. And come to find out, April's husband is a cop. So he even had trouble getting to our hotel because they completely shut down the strip, the uh, freeway. And uh, Auntie and Betty stayed with me. And then uh, the next morning, we uh, we had AAA come out, put the spare on my car and my wife's car. And then we drove to the local the local uh, tire shop and got the tire fixed. I dropped them off at the Excalibur and I literally left. Mm-hmm. And I did a live all the way home and I was crying, ugly snots. And the funny thing is, Rick, God bless his heart, you know, after the fact, he's like, I should have just flew out there and I could have drove back with you because I'm doing this live and I'm doing like the, it, I'm still running on adrenaline, but I'm like ugly crying. Like, mm-hmm. and, uh, that was day one for me. That was, that's where things changed. You know, I had to go back to work that Tuesday cause I was fresh at the County. Like I was, I want to say I was still within my first year. Mm-hmm. I only had three days off and I used those days so I could go to the festival mm-hmm. And uh, I remember sitting in the parking lot and all they were talking about was fucking paddock, 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 paddock. Oh, what's, what's this, that, that. And it took me a lot of years to even say his name, like before it was just that guy. Mm-hmm. And so I took to my social media and said, Hey, cause as a photographer, when you're at these events, people want their photos that you take. They're like, Hey, how do I find these photos? Oh, it's going to be on this website or mm-hmm. what's your social, you know, uh, link up on you know wherever we're linked up at and 
So these people were reaching out to me on social media saying, hey, are you okay? Because at this point, I kind of got a rep. Years three, I was the guy that would get on the the barricades where the, the pit was and I'd get the crowd all jump in. And, you know, I just like people knew me. They knew the look. And they're like, we just want to make sure you, you were okay. And so I went to my social media and I said, look, fuck that guy. I want you to, mm-hmm. I want the world to know that this was the best weekend ever. Cause like up until this point, up until the 11 minutes, it was the best. I, I'm telling you, bro. Like I've only come cl- like, I said, I've only come close to maybe one event since that event that has that magic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, like it should, to me, it tells me how, how magical that weekend was because even six years later, even after everything that happened, it's still one of the, if not the best weekend of my life. And um, I, I went to social media and I said, hey, if you were there and we have pictures together or I took a picture of you or picture, anything that was the best time of your life that weekend, tag me, put the hashtag love wins. And we want to show the world what that weekend was about and not just those 11 minutes because I saw people running back into the venue to bring people out. I saw people carrying people out on fucking homemade stretchers are over their bodies are protecting people in the middle of the street as bullets are flying down. Like in the worst humanity ever had to offer me, I saw the best in humanity. And that's when I I started this love wins movement. And I'm not gonna lie, bro. I probably didn't sleep for the first year. Like, and I'm not talking like I was high. Or I'm just talking like I couldn't sleep. Like I would, I would pass out due to exhaustion. And uh, it was it was rough, man. And I, I remember going to Monday Night Madness, you know, which is a big Hollywood meeting. Mm-hmm. And I remember I came home Monday morning, hugged my wife, and uh, I've only done. You're the fourth quote unquote interview I've done talking about this. And I'll tell you why the first interview I did on the, on the radio with my station, uh, my station had called me and said, Hey, we have a sister, uh, uh, a news affiliate station. Will you do an interview? Cause you were there. Yeah. So it, that was okay. But they, all they wanted to talk about was the shooting about paddock. And I was like, yeah, I won't do it again. And I did another interview when I got back. And they talked about my story, talked about recovery, talked about everything, but they turned in a, like a two hour interview into like a 90 second clip that was 70 seconds about shooting, showing gory pictures, Mm -hmm. and then a snippet of what I said. And that happened to be the one that my uh, 10 year old daughter watched and she was completely traumatized. She didn't want to go to Vegas for years. And she always got afraid when I had to go or if anything to do with an event. And, uh, so I, uh, I get home, I hug my wife, we cry. And I said, I got to go to a meeting. And I remember sitting in the back of that meeting and I can't tell you who shared or anything like that. And they said, uh, anybody have a burning desire? And I raised my hand they called me up and this used to be my home group. Like I was the coffee guy for the year for years. And, uh, uh, everybody kind of knew who I was and I walked up and said, Hey, I was in October. I mean, I was at route 91 and I really want to fucking get loaded. And, uh, you know, my sponsor, he, he was on my hip per se via phone or in person. Cause, uh, I used to work with him 
so we had we had a great relationship and uh it, it was just a blur man like you get through the other side of that shooting now now what like now what do i do and uh that's when the rooms the stuff i learned in the rooms kicked in okay and i i i went a few weeks just posting on social media and just reaching out to people and you know talking to my sponsor on a regular basis and uh one of fellow survivors fellow survivors it's like a running joke now because with my podcast and some stuff i do uh they were back then they'd call it late night with d you know because i'd get on facebook live two three four in the morning because i wasn't sleeping and fellow survivors would be up you know we were all trying to deal with what we were going through and um I got a private message one day and they said, uh, hey, do you know about this group? And I'm like, what group? And they're like, it's a bunch of survivors. You know, one of the survivors started the special group, only survivors are allowed in. And that's where my journey, like that to me is where the recovery from Route 91 started. Mm -hmm. And I attacked it the way I did when I came into the rooms. Like, I'm not, like Jimmy will tell you, I was not a step worker and, uh, for the first three years, I think I was working the first step. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but the thing I did with Jimmy was wherever he went, I was in his fucking pocket, mm -hmm. like traveling, uh, conventions, meetings. Um, and, uh, so the same vigor that I applied to staying clean and not, uh, disrespecting my mom's memory of me was the same vigor. I started attacking, trying to get to the other side of the shooting. Uh, and it wasn't easy, man. Like you don't sleep. They, they want to prescribe you a bunch of fucking medicine. Uh, you know, you tell your doctor like, look, I'm in recovery, bro. Like, and by this point I've had the same doctor for a couple of years. They knew mm -hmm. what was going on. And he's like, like either you need to rest or your body's going to shut down. Cause like I'm overweight. I'm using food as a fix energy drinks. Like I'm drinking four or five a night to stay up. Cause I got to go to work. Mm -hmm. Um, and I get involved in this group and I started what became the Love Wins Official Movement. And that's where I started applying stuff that I learned in the rooms, like networking. Uh, you know, I didn't know it at the time and I was thinking about it on the way here, but we were kind of having meetings online. Mm -hmm. We would get online and we'd start talking. If someone was having a bad moment, uh, we would all kind of chime in. And uh, if we would start going to events, because they, they started having gatherings right after in safe smaller venues yeah. like you know hey we're gonna do a, a fundraiser for xyz and this that and the other now mind you this happened october 1st i want to say end of october beginning of november uh it was placed on my heart i you know i have kids you know i was married like and there's 58 families who now have to bring a body home from vegas when they were that's how many people were killed yeah 58 people were killed that night. Uh, su subsequently, we've had uh, a few take their own lives. We had two pass away from their injuries from that night a couple years later, but 58's the number from that mm -hmm. night. And I wanna say 800 actually injured through gun violence and our injuries sustained trying to get out. But overall, there's 22,000 of us. And uh, I remember being in a group chat saying, hey, Cause Christmas was always a big deal. Like my nanny had two trees in the house, one tree outside. Uh, we grew up on section eight, you know, 
uh, funny money, you know, the old paper, you know, food stamps. Mm-hmm. And, but Christmas time, and mind you, my birthday is December 23rd, so it was like double stacked, like always was a big deal. And I'm still trying to pan the holidays because I have two young children at home. I have grandchildren at this point. And all I want to do is honestly take a fucking bullet to the brain because I want to stop the racing thoughts mm-hmm. or get loaded. But I can't get loaded because my kids have never seen me loaded. And I know if I get lo- if I take that first one, it's on, it's on and running. Mm-hmm. So uh, that became my focus was to do what is now known as the Love Wins Holiday Drive. And what started out as helping one, I just wanted to help one of the 58 families. So I went to social media and I said, hey, if you know of any of the 58 families personally, like if, if it was somebody you knew, it wasn't like, oh, you knew through three people removed. Mm-hmm. Like you knew that angel's family, reach out to me or uh, Amanda, who is my ace deuce. They call us peanut butter and jelly because we've been together as far as a team since day one. And uh, her brother was at the event. And she had done other stuff for her job for like Toys for Tots. So she had the experience to take my idea and make it a reality. An organization. And uh, so, (laughs) mind you, we hadn't met ever. And I'm like, hey, you're my new best friend. I need to do this. I want to help one family out. How can I do this? And uh, through a series of connections, we ended up helping out all 58 families. And that first year was fucking crazy. We sponsored a Thanksgiving dinner for survivors in Vegas. We did other uh, events and uh, we became a nonprofit because my money guy, Greg, he was a hedge fund manager slash owner of his company. And he came to me one day in a chat and he says, Hey, you know, I've been following your, your stuff. And at this point, you know, I'm a hustler, man. We grew up in the streets. Like I was the guy who would buy something from, you know, a store that you couldn't get in another area. And then I'd go to that area and sell it for double. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, the things you learn in the drug trade, you know, buy cheap, sigh how mm-hmm. you, 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 you chain of custody kind of deal. And by this time I'm a diehard 49er fan and I made custom flags for my support team at my booster club. So I had an inlet into these flags and uh, I said, you know, what? I'm going to make these uh, route 91 flags. It says route 91 with the, the what would become our symbol, the orange, uh, symbol and uh, and it, it had the Vegas skyline said country strong survivor or whatever and I would buy these flags at cost sell them for $58 for obvious reasons to honor the 58 and everything we made in profit would go out to a family or these events and I was doing these weekly reports I was talking to one of my guys and we were laughing I would get on every Sunday and be like, all right, this is D or GD. Uh, and this week I raised, uh, we sold 40 flags, raised, you know, $4,000. Cost was 2000 something with shipping. I'm sending out XYZ to such and such. Mm-hmm. Well, Greg, like Greg deals with like million, billion dollar things, right? Mm-hmm. Here I'm doing like hundreds, hundred yeah. thousand. He goes like, bro, I, I appreciate your gumption. He's uh, but. I want to help you. I just can't fuck with you unless you're hundred percent legit above board. He's mm-hmm. all, I'm not judging you. He's all, but let's be honest. Look how you look. And at this point, it was a huge money grab after route 91, all these quote unquote nonprofits formed. There was a GoFundMe account that to this day, no one knows where the money went. Like, wow. And I was just this little guy and like, I'm not in denial. I know what I look like. Big beard, 
prison tattoos. I told everybody from Jump Street, I literally was living in the heart of East LA, like, and I'm in a country community. <laughs> like, it's all yeehaw, big trucks, you know, good old boys. And, you know, I'm not in denial. I know. And, but I, I had such a passion for trying to help these families for the first year that I wanted to make sure everything was above reproach. And when Greg reached out to me, he said, look, the only way I can help you out is, is, is if you're a legit nonprofit and everything's above board. And that's how Love Wins became a nonprofit. We did the holiday drive and uh, ever since then, it's been off and running. We were a part of the first five years remembrance events. Um, last year, we did our own little thing here in town. And uh, you know, it's been a journey because you, you deal with the PTSD, you deal with the internal struggle, like the things that we find in the rooms of recovery, it happens everywhere in life. Mm -hmm. And when it's something as traumatic as going through Route 91, if you, I, I kind of felt bad for the people that didn't have recovery because this was the first time they were dealing with that. Mm -hmm. Like when you get clean, all that shit that you were quote unquote using over, you've gotten tools to help you deal with. Now, I'm not saying, I'm a role, remote, role model recovering addict who, uh, who, who uses all his tools, mm -hmm. but I had them there when I was finally ready to do the work. And I think one of the best gifts of my recovery and to this day, I still hold true to it is my sponsor, Rick. Uh, because even when I didn't talk to him, even when I went weeks, sometimes months without reaching out to him, he, I'd get the good morning text or the just for today. Mm -hmm. like, hey, I'm just checking on you, you know? And it kept me grounded to let me know that at least there was one person who still loved me enough to reach out to me, even though inside I was dying. And, uh, you know, if it wasn't for the, the stuff that I got through the rooms and my kids and this nonprofit, I probably would have took my own life because it just that weight of, I used to say survivor's guilt. And I had a survivor tell me, you don't have guilt, you have remorse. And here's where things kind of switch up. You know, I'm in the room for 13 years. I want to become famous in an anonymous program because, you know, you see everybody traveling all mm -hmm. over the world and, you know, they're making money in the rooms because mm -hmm. they're selling merch. And like I like I was looking for I I was one step removed from the hustle of the streets. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. I wasn't picking up and using, but I was still trying to come up. And uh, I was focused on this career to be a world famous photographer. And I wasn't the best person, bro. Like I had recovery in me, but I, you know, they, they talk about, you know, uh, sharing clean, living dirty per se. Mm -hmm. Like I talk a good game from the podium, but you know, I, I'm, I'm doing drug deals in the parking lot after the meeting kind of, not that I was doing that, but similar, yeah. you know, kind of lifestyle. And, uh, in those 11 minutes when I was leaving the venue, you know, they, for me, my life flashed before my eyes. And other than my kids and getting clean before my mom died, I wasn't proud of the man I was. And I didn't want to be that person. And uh, it's been since that day, I've really focused on trying to be the best version of me every day. And some days I'm a complete fucking shit show. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a, I tell people I can either be a spiritual giant or a mental midget. And depending on where I'm at that day, it depends on who you, you meet. And if it wasn't for the rooms of narcotics, if it wasn't for the rooms, I think I know for a fact I wouldn't be here today, even with the kids.
because it gave me enough. I always tell people when I used to share a lot, I just wanted a break when I got out of prison from that last one and the next one. Because mm. in my mind, I was just going into treatment so I could get my mom off my back, get off parole, and then I was off and running. Like, I, I didn't have any illusion that I was going to walk into treatment and be this this miracle that everybody talks about. I just needed a break from that last one and the next one, get my mom off my back. And then I would figure out my game plan to start rocking and rolling again. And mom dying, keeping that promise to her and then root happening. And all that old baggage that I really didn't work on the first 13 years came to fruition and I was forced to work on it. And, uh, you know, I, I have to say it's been it's it's been harder the last six than it was the first 13 mm-hmm. because you put yourself in positions because you're trying to save the world and you're not you're not thinking about yourself you know you're you're making sure everybody else gets on the lifeboat and your boat's sinking and the kicker is you're the one sinking your own fucking boat yeah you know and uh through a series of events uh my circle got really small over the last two years and uh I started focusing more on myself and uh, I started focusing more on building, rebuilding my relationship with my sponsor. Uh, He, our relationship got distant, not because of him, but because of me, Mm -hmm. because, and it was funny as he reached out to me the other day when he actually called me about you and he Mm said, Hey, are you okay? And I said, yeah, why? He said, Oh, I just watched your TikTok and, uh, you know, I was having a rough day, man. Like I felt mm. like the world was closing in on me. Like things weren't happening quick enough. I wasn't, and you know, I'll talk about walking into you. So for those, you guys can't see, but I, I brought my little, my, my vlogging backpack, mm-hmm. right? It has my, my, my phone, my little mini tripod, these, these, uh, off brand mics. And I got these two little like square lights, you know, mm-hmm. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, a blogger on a budget, right? I walk into the room and you guys have the, a legit setup, right? I appreciate that. Thanks. It's like, like the, I'm going to take a picture when I leave because this is going to be the goal of by the time, like Thanks. in a year, I want to be at this setup, right? So uh, I walk in and I, 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 well, I'm sorry, talking in circles. I did this video because like I'm trying to do the vlog. We're in the middle of our holiday drive, which is our biggest fundraiser of the year. And we weren't doing like I had just raised only like a thousand dollars. And the last couple of years we've been doing a budget of about 10 to 15,000 and 50, 40 to 50% of that is just the holiday drive. And what that is, is any of the 58 families, if they ever reach out to me and it's something that me and my nonprofit are doing, they never pay. I don't care what it is. If I have to pay out of my pocket, I don't think any of those families should ever have to pay for anything that's doing or honoring their, their angel. Mm-hmm. And that's what the holiday draw started out was just the 58 families. And then we had so many people helping us. We were able to branch out to survivors. And now the holiday drive is priority is families, survivors of any mass tragedy, because like if you're watching the news, we just had the main incident. Uh, we had uh, Boulder borderline a couple of years after root. Uh, which I'm really close with a lot of their families. Um, and the ideal of this nonprofit, once again, I got from the rooms, is boots on the ground. Like we, I, I had ideals that we were going to be like this multi-million dollar machine that was able to just cut checks and, you know, 
help people out didn't turn out that way. It's more of a grassroots movement. We have a core group of survivors and supporters who always help us. And when something like Maine happens, like we're already reaching out to people out there like, hey, does anybody have a point of contact with the 18 families? Let them know that they're not alone. Like we have a support system in place, just like the rooms. Mm-hmm. Like you can go anywhere in the world and I, I, can, I can call Jimmy. Like Jimmy is like the human Rolodex yeah. of, hey Jimmy, like, oh you're in Bangladesh, you got to link up with. Yeah, it's legitly yeah. like, and don't get me wrong, when me and Jimmy parted ways because he was my original sponsor, mm-hmm. you know, and I will forever be grateful for Jimmy because he was, he was the standard that I set my recovery by, mm-hmm. because on how I didn't do the step work like Jimmy. But his involvement with Jimmy. Yeah, he pours his heart into this program so and, much. Yeah. And Rick was more my style. Mm-hmm. Now, mind you, Jimmy, not to put you on blast, Jimmy, but Jimmy's a family man now, mm-hmm. has a baby. And when he I, wasn't then. When yeah. he, he was Jimmy Jam, yeah. one, two, one, two, you know? <laughs> uh, but Rick was family. I know, yeah. And they were in the same sponsor tree. And uh, Rick was a no nonsense, fucking camel smoking kind of guy. Mm-hmm f-bombing kind of like rick yeah they, back then oh he would every other word what uh, my name is rick p and i'm an addict you know i can't do it like him and uh-huh. like he cussed like a sailor wow yeah he but me and him about jived and i remember mm-hmm. me and jimmy parted ways and i was working with rick at the time and we were sitting outside the home office and you know i said hey i gotta talk to you and he kind of knew what i was gonna ask him uh-huh. and he's smoking a cigarette and he goes yeah what's up what's up big dog what's up big dog I'm like, well, you know, uh, and I was really nervous. Like, okay, so I'm going to tell you a story about Jimmy John, how he became my sponsor. Yes, yes. So I was going to get loaded that day, like I was telling you. I totally got sidetracked on that story. Mm-hmm. My girlfriend at the time called her friend who was in town just to pick up a classic car to drive back east somewhere, took me and dropped me off at the meeting. And I'll never forget it. I can't remember his name, but he was from a 1% club. He was in the meeting, and he was obviously a quote-unquote Southside Sorenio sitting in the back with me and Jimmy Jam comes walking in fucking blazing red. You know, Jimmy, like, mm-hmm. I don't know if he still does it today, but he, not as much, but yeah. he coordinates like yeah. down to the socks and the underwear. Like yeah. I've traveled with the man. He's color coordinate. I've been to his house. It's super organized. Yeah. Uh, yes. And, uh, this was premarital. So he was always on point. Like Jimmy, you never saw Jimmy without shade, without a fade. Like mm-hmm. he was, he was a good, uh, advertisement for what living, without the use of drugs was about like he he was the attraction and i had seen him and i i had heard him share and i was going to ask him to sponsor me when i was in treatment mm-hmm. but the, the line to meet him after the meeting was like <laughs> it was longer than to get into the fucking club yeah, you know want, what i mean like his autograph yeah like oh I, so he walked in and i remember telling my friend i said look i'm gonna ask this guy to be my sponsor and if he says no i'm fucking getting loaded mm-hmm. and the universe like like i said i'm not a gang member I've never been affiliated, but growing up the way I did and coming out of prison, like the color red, Mm. just not. And I'm a 49er (laughs) fan, which is a very hard fan base to be a part of and not like the color red. So in comes Jimmy walking in full red and the cherry on the cake was he had a red LA hat, Dodger hat. And I remember talking to this guy, I said, I I go, I never thought I'd see the fucking day. He goes, I know, fucking a red Dodger hat. Mm -hmm. Like a fucking bullshit. He goes, I know. Now, mind you, I want to ask him to be my sponsor. And, of course, I think Jimmy was sharing that day at the meeting. So he drops one of his... Amazing messages. Yeah, he's so good. And, at and you're, you're on fire. Like, yeah, yes, yes, let's do this. Uh-huh. Recovery. 
And the line after meeting to meet Jimmy. Yeah. And he knew I was coming there to ask him something because uh, I forgot how it transpired. And I said, hey, I want to ask you something. And he said, well, come to lunch with us. You know, I'm fresh out of prison. I just started this job. I was doing telemarketing. I didn't have very much money. I was trying to take care of my future wife and our kids. And uh, I didn't have money. And he's like, don't worry about it. You know, pay it forward when you can. So we're eating and I'm sitting around the table with like legit recovery vets, all double, double digits. Mm -hmm. You know, Jimmy at the time, I think had 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. uh, like it was with, I, I want to say, yo, Steve was there. Uh, uh, like a lot of the Hollywood heavy hitters, yeah, like, yeah. you know, you know, the, the crew that, yeah, yeah. You know, the godfathers of recovery, like I yeah. used to call them. And, uh, you know, they're all talking about like recovery stuff and, and, I'm all pissed off because I got these fucking key tags with no keys. And, mm -hmm. and I waited till the end of the, the, uh, the lunch. And I said, Hey, would you, you know, would you be my sponsor? And he's like, well, I don't know. I don't, I don't have time for, you know, treatment sponsees, you know, cause you guys aren't legit, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and I wasn't in treatment at the time, but I was at a, a halfway house and he's like, well, you know, I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to, you're going to, you're going to be on trial for 30 days. So I had to call him like every day for 30 days. Yeah. And, you know, he, I don't know if he still does that now, but, uh, and I remember I missed one day just mm -hmm. purely by, you know, working, taking the bus four hours a day. And I called him and said, Hey, I'll start over. Please don't fire me. And, you know, I was with him for five years, man. And it was, it was some of the best times of my life traveling. Mm -hmm. I remember telling Jimmy when we went to New York the first time I called him up and said, I can't go. And he's like, why? I, like this is literally the night before I said, I don't have a passport. Mm -hmm. He's like, what do you need a passport for? I said, cause we're going to New York. He goes, bro, that's in the United States. <laughs> and, uh, some of, <laughs> yeah, I remember laughing. Like he was like, like he was there the first time I spoke at a convention. Uh, like some of the greatest moments in my recovery, Jimmy was there. And mm -hmm. when we broke up and I say it like that. <laughs> it was probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. Like we just came to a point in our, in my recovery where our journeys were changing. And if I would have done what I've always done, which is force the issue, mm -hmm. uh, I probably would have destroyed whatever friendship we would possibly have in the future. And by then I had known Rick, you know, he, he ate same dynamic as Jimmy when he shares line out the building mm -hmm. and, but he was more in tune with where my path was going at that time, which was the family angle mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. And, you know, Jimmy didn't cuss very much. I don't think Jimmy cusses at all now, but Rick, every other word was F-bomb. and He don't cuss anymore, does Oh, no, he, he doesn't cuss at all. Like, he, he totally flipped yeah. the script, but, you know. Uh, wow, that's so funny. Yeah, he, like, I, I seen Rick in the pre-cussing uh, pre, uh, days, mm -hmm. and uh, I asked him, and... Uh, you know, he's like, well, let me ask my, my, their grant, well, my grand sponsor, their sponsor, because, you know, the whole family tree thing and Chris, or not Chris, uh, uh, Rick didn't want to step on toes. And, you know, he, he ran it up to our, my grand sponsor, Big Rick, may he rest in peace. And he's like, well, fuck it. If he's asking you, that's, that's who God's telling him to talk to. Mm -hmm. And me and Rick have been on this journey together ever since. Like me and Rick went to my first world convention. We've traveled, uh, He's been there at the birth of my my second child. Jimmy was there. I, I remember Jimmy coming to the hospital with my first child, and I'll never forget it. You know, like my mom died when I had ninety two days clean. My pops died when I had two years clean, and Jimmy helped me walk through it all. 
and my kids were born. Jimmy was there when I got when we got the kids back. My ki- Jimmy was there, mm. and I remember one thing. That, and I, I was just telling my wife this the other day. I said, uh, you know, my my old sponsor, and she knows who Jimmy is. Yeah. Because she was telling me about a situation that was happening at work, and I said, well, Jimmy used to say, you know, God takes care of babies and fools, so you're both covered. Mm-hmm. And he said he would always say, don't go looking or don't ask a question that you're not spiritually ready for the answer. Now, Jimmy, you watch this 18 years later, that's something that I value and hold core to who I am. And I even tell my kids that. And uh, that's like what the journey's been like, especially after Root. Like, Mm -hmm. I haven't delved into too many of the conspiracy theories. I have what I believe happened. Uh, But I also know for a fact, if you you speak out on what they consider the narrative, mysteriously, your brake lines don't work Mm -hmm. or, you know, you have a mysterious heart attack and you're healthy as a horse. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what I saw that night and the narrative doesn't match. So it's been a very long and lonely journey at times. Yeah, because um, I like battled asking you like details about uh, it. You can ask me whatever you want. Because Well, a part of me is like, um, it's kind of how like when people ask me, people ask me a lot about like Big Pharma oh, yeah. and like Oxycontin and you know all this stuff or whatever and it's like my focus is like recovery yeah it's like there's always going to be some drug getting made by china that the u.s allows in like the freeway rick ross scenario with like the cia and like i think some people get caught up in like in, in in that stuff and like i really just try to focus on like who wants to get clean yeah who wants to get clean how we can help them because uh that is rewarding and there's a solution and there's it's like easy but when you start going into like uh like the politics and the conspiracy theories and like feeling like a victim or like not trusting the government like i don't see a lot of freedom in that you know what i mean so it's like i don't like i don't watch people you got to watch this documentary on and i'm just like i just have no interest in that you know and and i do have a lot of questions about like Cause I'm a gun guy. I'm from Florida. Oh, hey now. So it's like, um, I love Florida. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> they, 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 they are very liberal in yeah, their views. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, um, we, uh, so, so a part of me is like, how did like, cause well, someone was telling that the guy who did it, uh, Paddock, Paddock, he wasn't into guns. You know the okay. So there's a couple and it's of- like, it's he, like, I know how hard it is to get a fully automatic weapon. I don't know if he's doing belt fed. Uh, it, was it belt fed? Was it you know? No, it was bump stocks, and he had magazines. It wasn't belt fed. Oh, okay. And so here's the kicker. All right, so you're gonna get an exclusive. I don't think, yeah, the scenarios don't match up. And if you look at the video, the video that's a well, if you can find any video, because online, I know how long eleven minutes is. Yes, because you could do a hundred rounds in sixty seconds with a with a bump stock. Yeah, and. If you do the math, how many rounds do you think it was? I don't even know. I know it was in thousands. Yeah, it's got to be that. And then the thing is, is like, you got to have multiple guns because they're going to overheat. Yeah. And he did have multiple guns up. There was multiple guns found in the the hotel room. But I'm talking like there's because I've shot full auto before. You know what I mean? And it's like, I know. And this guy, like, you look like you're in good shape. Thank you. This guy was an old guy who was not athletic in any way, shape or form. And I, I am a Second Amendment 
guy. Mm-hmm. Like I believe in the right to bear arms and I am the mindset fuck around and find out. And, uh, it, it just doesn't add up. And when I was running, yes, there was bullets coming from a top from like coming down, but unless you had like some JFK shit, the bullets were also coming across. So it, uh, and like you, if you've ever been in an active shooter scenario, not something like route 91, but growing up in the lifestyle I did, you, you've been around drive-bys and, you know, gang activity, you know, the way a gun or bullet sounds when it's coming from either above you, front of you side and the way things were getting hit, it wasn't just from the, mm-hmm. uh, the sniper's nest as they call it. Uh, and I just don't see it. Like I've, I've watched a few, uh, documentaries uh that we're talking about what happened that night and i have a friend of mine he's actually the father of one of the 58 where they did a navy seal scenario and navy seals who are the elite of the elite couldn't pull off shooting that many rounds in that a lot of time multiple seals mm-hmm. and you're telling me this 67 year old man was able to do that by himself yeah, and the thing is, is like even if you had pre-loaded magazines and um, inside, yeah, you know, uh, it it uh, it's crazy. It's to think about, and then it's like, what type of rounds are you, like? Are you shooting seven six two three oh eight? Like it it it's the math doesn't add up. Yeah, it, it really doesn't. And this is, and I shared this before, <coughs> and you know. Uh, I, I don't do concert photography as much as I used to. Actually, I didn't shoot one concert this year. I started doing the vlogging thing mm-hmm. uh, for my station, but it got brushed under the carpet so quickly because of where it was located. It happened in Vegas, which is a tourist town. Like, yes, the city mourned for us and they held vigils and they were supportive of the survivors there. Mm-hmm. But I feel like it wanted to be brushed under the rug as quickly as possible because it was affecting the bottom line. Mm -hmm. And uh, everybody was leading with Paddock. It was all about Paddock, 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 Paddock. And that's really lit a fire under my ass because like I said, while he's creating the most heinous act of society that I'd ever been a part of up until that point, I saw the greatest acts of valor with the people that were there that night. Mm -hmm. And ever since that night, like, I may not like get along or like everybody that's part of the country strong community, but I will always have their back if they need it because that's what we do. Just like in the rooms of recovery, you and I could be in the rooms and you and I could hate each other's yeah, guts. Still family. And you call me up one day and say, Hey D, I feel like getting loaded. Can you take me to a meeting? I will be like, Hey, I will be there in 15 minutes. Or if I can't make it, I will make sure someone's picking you up to take you to a meeting. Mm-hmm. And I truly, truly believe that the universe knew what was going to happen to me. And that's why I had what I had in me through the rooms of recovery to allow me to get to the other side mm-hmm. of where I'm at today. Uh, before we go, can you tell me more about the random acts of kindness that you were talking about? Okay. So once again, you're going to get, this is the first time I'm talking about it. And, Cause I'm sure your, your platformer is way bigger than mine. Like I got like 400 followers on YouTube and shit. Um, so, and I'm going to share this story and we can wrap up after that if you like. Uh, I have a good partner of mine. He's like one of my best friends from from the event. We met at a, I used to call them photo gatherings because I didn't like to use the word photo shoot mm-hmm. right after just for obvious wow, reasons. Yeah. 
Uh, not more so for me, because like I said, I'm a I'm a gun guy. Like if it wasn't for my felonies, I would have a full arsenal. <laughs> and uh, and I knew the word was a trigger for a lot of people, so we use photo events. And I met him there, and after becoming really good friends, he's one of my best friends. He actually met Paddock Saturday night at the gas station. So if this is the venue, uh, I don't know if this is on camera, but. Uh-huh. This is the venue, right? So this is Las Vegas Strip, the Mirage, uh, mm-hmm. MGM, all that right here. This is the back lot. Like, this is the back lot I was telling you I was parked at. And there's a gas station around the curve. Let's say that's the, the Red Bull can. So that's the gas station. He went there to get, like, tall cans or something or maybe cigarettes. I don't think mm-hmm. he smoked. I, he was there. And he met Paddock. Like, he didn't know who he was. Yeah, but he saw him there. He saw him there, like, said, excuse me or whatever. Like, they bumped into each other. And uh, I won't mention his name because I don't know if he's shared it publicly, but he told me that for the longest time, he like he carried guilt because he's like, if I only if I would have knew like and I told him like we no one knew like this guy was going up and down uh, employee elevators with multiple bags of ammo and guns and all because he was a high roller. No one questioned it. Different story, different conspiracy theory. But here's what the random act of kindness came from is that I believe that, and this is, so there's 22,000 of us that were there that night and I'm not very smart with math, but if 22,000 of us for the rest of our lives do one random act of kindness a day, that's 22,000 random acts of kindness going out in the world. And then if only 10% of that 22,000 from the day before add on, eventually all 7 billion people will be doing a random act of kindness. So back to the paddock story, my, my hope and my dream is that the next person that is planning to do a mass, a massive tragedy that, and I'm not talking about earthquakes, natural disasters, Maine. You're talking about heinous. Heinous crime. Like if you're planning to drive a bomb to this, the hotel here, park it in the valet, walk away, press the button and Mm -hmm. fucking kill everybody in the building. That kind of shit. You're on your way here. And Dave, you have to stop and get gas, right? Because you don't have enough gas to get here. You go to the gas station and Dave happens to see you and says, hey, man, how you doing today? And you're like, well, I'm, I'm all right. Got some heavy shit on my mind. Well, man, I hope you have a great day, bro. I'm, I'm, God bless you. Like whatever mm-hmm. it is. But it was so random and such an act of kindness that it makes you think, you know, maybe let me think about this or let me reach out to somebody I trust and say, hey, I'm thinking about doing this. And hope that that will stop you from pulling through the random act. I mean, mm-hmm. pulling through the, the heinous crime. And uh, that's what we practice, man. Uh, you know, it takes money to run the non-profit, but we don't ever charge anybody for the stuff we do. Uh, we do fundraising every year. Like I said, uh, we do the holiday drive. And that video to kind of loop back that Rick called me on, I had posted like, I've only had raised like $1,000 at that point. And we were almost halfway through our fundraiser. Every year our goal was 10,000. And uh, I was like really overwhelmed. And he's like, hey man, I want you to talk to my guy. Uh, he, he does a podcast and he's, uh, maybe you guys can talk you know, about your recovery, about Love Wins. And he's, uh, but I saw your TikTok, why didn't you call me? And, and I don't know if you can relate. I don't like, like I'm always there for you. And I don't, I'll tell you, call me no matter what time, and I will help you through whatever your darkest moment is, but I don't want to burden you with mine. 
And by the time I share it on my social media platform, I'm already on the other side of it because those first 13 years of recovery have given me a base to where I know, to, like, there's very little that I can go through now that I don't have the tools to get to through get on. on my own because I don't ever want to be a burden to somebody because I know what it feels like to be like, ah. mm-hmm. And it's just, it, it, that's, to me, that's the hardest thing I scro- struggle with this last year is I needed more help this year staying clean per se and, and not by getting loaded, but by mentally checking out and mm-hmm. that start. Because me and Rick were talking, you know, being in the industry I'm in, you're around booze and drugs all the time. You know, fucking rock stars. Everybody's fucking partying. Like, oh, what are you doing after hours? I know if I take that first drink or that first hit or whatever it is, Mm-hmm. Like you're gonna want to go home to Florida and be like, oh, cool, that was a cool party. Yeah, I'm gonna be like, no, nah, let's pick up a fucking half ounce of coke and let's go to Vegas. Like, mm-hmm. where my addiction took me was I was waking up in hospitals, not not even waking up. I was coming to in hospitals in Southern California and Las Vegas, and I knew what hospital I was in by the ceiling tile because I had been there so many times. Mm-hmm. That's where I end up when I get loaded. I don't want to be like that. So. You know, we, we practice a random act of kindness. You know, I've kind of gotten away from the everyday program. and But the stuff I've learned from the rooms of re- recovery, have now I applied to my nonprofit. And uh, I, I truly, truly believe that we will change the world through kindness. My son, every time he sees a ribbon, no matter the color, says, hey, dad, they support love wins. Mm-hmm. And my daughter, my youngest one, little smart ass, We'll say, hey, that's not very love winish of you as he's getting grounded. <laughs> but, uh, you know, if I can. You're, What's the name of your TikTok, Instagram, uh, YouTube, podcast uh, so the, people can find you? The TikTok is Dennis, D-E-N-N-I-S Guerrero, G-U-E-R-R-E-R-O-I-I. Mm-hmm. Uh, Instagram is lovewinsrt91. Facebook is uh, Dennis Escarero the second Roman numerals are capital I I. YouTube is Love Wins with an S D E or yeah D is it G D or D E E G E E or no I'm sorry Love Wins G E E D E E and the podcast is on there uh, it's called Be Kind Podcast mm-hmm. because like I said and it's kind of like the mindset of this podcast with you is that. I believe no matter where you're at in life, whether you're on the highest of highs or the lowest of lows, you have a special magic of kindness that only you can bring into the world that potentially change the history of the world. And, uh, you know, I truly try to get on every day. I always share with my audience, I will be open, honest, the good, the bad, and the ugly, because I feel that God has given me the ability with the gift of gab to share my story because there's somebody behind the camera per se that is going through something just like we are, but they don't have the voice to share it and they're literally killing themselves alone. And if they happen to stumble across our platforms and say, I'm not the only one. And maybe that's the random act of kindness that I do that day that they hear. And I've gotten messages from all social media platforms like, oh, I really needed that video. Thank you. Thank you for being honest. And uh, it's just kind of been my mission. I, I I don't know where it's gonna end up, man. I just hope that it started out as a daily blog for my kids for a year because I've really been behind the scenes for the last six years after Route 91. Mm-hmm. I didn't like to be in the limelight. Like I said, I've only done three three actual interviews about Route 91. And any event that we've done, I like, I'll say something real quick because people 
you know, want to see me, but I don't like to be in the limelight. And this last year has been a lot about self-evolution and making sure that that mission that was placed on my heart doesn't die in, mm-hmm. die in the night. Hey, well, I appreciate you coming on the show. That was uh, really, like, I, I seen you get goosebumps multiple times, yeah, you know? Yeah. It, it to me, I appreciate you having me on. I appreciate we talking about the road to recovery to get here and, and sharing our message because the reality is it's not said enough. Mm-hmm. Like every if, if it bleeds, it leads in the media. Yeah. And, you know, and that's kind of the point of the podcast is because there's so many stories about like how many people die of fentanyl. And then there's like people that are like clean, like celebrities or whatever, but not a lot of people explain like a 12-step program or how 12-step programs work or the benefit of them and then if you like look up any articles there's a lot of like people bashing 12-step programs it's a cult it's a cult or it doesn't work or how many people like relapse or whatever so there's not a lot of positive stuff said about 12-step programs or proof of how many people are clean like i have 140 episodes like 140 stories all, like that are They're out of this clean. world that people are still clean multiple years of people I personally know. So 90% of the people on the podcast, like I know them personally, or I know like through Rick, Yeah, you know what I mean? Oh, he's a great player. Yeah. He, he'll take you over. And here's the kicker. And this is what I'll say about 12 step programs. They work if you work them. Yeah. Like you could have the blueprint to make a zillion dollars, but if you're not willing to put in the work, you're not going to make a fucking mm-hmm. penny. You can stay clean for the rest of your life. Like my, my nanny buried all three of her kids, never picked up once. Mm. My mom saw me battle addiction. My sister battle addiction, never picked up once. My pops buried my mom and his parents, never picked up once. So you can't tell me this. I was sitting there watching my mother die and every eight hours, a new group of men and they would come and sit with me, cry, pray, whatever's. You can't tell me fucking recovery don't work. If you're not willing to do the work and you get loaded, that's mm-hmm. your fucking problem. Because I know for a fact, the Jimmy Jams, the Yo Steves, the mm-hmm. Rick Pees, Big Rick who passed away, uh, Thudi, like I know people all over the world in recovery who if I call at the drop of the dime and say, I want to get loaded today, mm-hmm. they will stay on the phone with me until I can get to a meeting. Mm-hmm. You can't tell me recovery doesn't work. Yeah. Hey, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. I appreciate, appreciate you guys, you. man. Thank you. This Thank is you. cool. Thank you. Thank I you. I appreciate it.